Welcome to Oh No, Ross and Carrie, the show where we don't just report on fringe science, spirituality, and claims of the paranormal, but take part ourselves. Yep, when they make the claims, we show up so you don't have to. I'm Carrie Poppy. And I'm Ross Blotcher, and we are joined by a very special guest today. Yes, we are joined by... Joined by... Is that right? Yeah. Joined with... We are joined together. Joined forthwith. Joined together. Yoked with <laughs> Jenny Rice, an archivist and professor of rhetoric at the University of Kentucky. We'll talk a bit about this, but we've heard from her over the years because she has so much in common with a lot of the things that we talk about on this podcast. But today, her particular set of skills provides for a great follow-up to our Bob Larson investigation. Yes. So she emailed us... I, it must have been right after we first started talking about Jerry Mungadzi, so probably over a year ago. Mm. She wrote to us, and I'm truncating this a little, but she said, Hi, guys. I just saw something Carrie posted on Twitter. It made me stop in my tracks. Part of why I ended up getting a PhD in my field was because of my experiences of being subjected to Jerry Mungadzi's therapy in Dallas as a teen during the 90s. I was told I had multiple personality disorder, that I was a satanic ritual abuse victim. And then when I went to college, I discovered information about false memory, changed my life on a personal and academic level. And then I left behind everything about that world because it was too painful to revisit. But now I've just completed a book on conspiracy theory and other extreme beliefs. And then she goes on, anyway, I guess this is just to register my shock at seeing that name again after all these years. I guess I'll just end by saying that if you know of people who experienced his therapy and would be interested in talking to another person who did as well, please share my information with them. So wow. we were like, whoa. <laughs> okay, yeah. So a listener to our show who happens to be a professor of rhetoric who's investigated conspiracy theories, but also was herself in her youth diagnosed by Jerry Mungadzi with multiple personality disorder and additional interesting elements to her story beyond that, we thought we've got to talk to Jenny. Yeah, absolutely. So I talked to her on the phone once or twice after this. We had a couple of exchanges via email, and um, it was really hard for her to decide whether to do an interview or sort of how to share her story. Mm -hmm. But because she knew he is still doing his thing, and there are other therapists like him still doing therapy to recover memories and sort of questionable trauma therapy methods, she's like, yeah, I mean, no one's talking about this. So if it's going to be me, it's going to be me, which is so brave. Uh, so I was really impressed with her. I, I guess it's also worth noting, this is obviously just her experience. This isn't a mm -hmm. condemnation of all trauma therapy, obviously, or all DID diagnoses. That's We're not qualified to say anything like that. But we will be talking to more experts in the episodes to come. But it's obvious that Jerry's particular brand of trauma therapy won't get your license revoked because he's been <laughs> reported multiple times and and that's a problem yeah well with that here's our conversation with dr jenny rice dr jenny rice thank you for being here thanks for having me now we've been in contact with you on and off for years you've actually listened to our show so you know our format a lot yes <laughs> i have not breezed through i heard you like 
people breezing through it in two weeks. I definitely did do that. I've been there since (laughs) almost the beginning. That's fantastic. Well, we have a lot of areas of overlap in our interests and you have specialties and memories related to a lot of the things we talk about on our show and specifically that we've been talking about on our show lately. Yes. Yes. So maybe first tell us about your current work. You're a professor of rhetoric. Yes. So I I teach at the University of Kentucky and um, I specialize in rhetorical theory. And really all that means is that I'm just interested in how we argue and talk to each other out in public. So, you know, public debates. So I started off being sort of interested in um, sort of public debates about space and things like gentrification and a lot of how emotion works, but, you know, really about how people come to understand the world around them. And then for all kinds of complicated reasons, I started a few years ago doing research on conspiracy theory rhetoric. Mm-hmm. And it was really a question of like, how do you debate with conspiracy theorists, you know, yeah. uh, and this is well before the 2016 election. So even then I was like, oh, I don't know if anybody will be interested in this topic or not. <laughs> and, so it was, it was, and then the burner got turned up to uncanny to timing. Yeah. So I, I did a few years of field work with 9-11 truthers, actually. So I spent some time learning about uh, ways that say, you know, people end up believing conspiracy narratives, how they argue, um, what they do with evidence. Mm. Um, And, you know, a a lot of the things that you guys talk about, it's very hard to argue with people who don't necessarily have the same relationship to evidence in the ways that we do. Right. What are the tools to have that conversation when they've kind of rejected the method of conversation as as a way to approach truth? So, uh, I mean, I'm so curious about many things. We've we've only slightly opened the box here on on what you know about. (laughs) But uh, but I just want to know a little bit more about that conspiracy theory embedding that you did. Were you there as a disinterested observer? How, How much did you get involved with them? Did they ask you to proclaim your beliefs? So, I mean, I had to go because it's part of a academic research. So I had to have, you know, institutional, I went through, it's called the IRB. IRB, So, you know, make sure that, you know, doing everything above board, I let everybody know. So I would attend conferences and meetups and just do interviews. I let everybody know that I was interested in talking to them mostly about their own process of how they came to learn about these things. So I wasn't there in any capacity to ask them a lot of personal questions or Mm -hmm. to debate them one way or the other. And so a a friend of mine who also does this research said, you need to approach them as alternative researchers. And, you know, I don't want to say, can I interview you because you're a conspiracy theorist, right? Mm -hmm. I ended up saying like, I'm interested in how you have you know, alternative narratives to the mainstream. And they're like, oh, uh, alternative researcher. Hold on, let me yeah. put that on my business card. <laughs> and interestingly, nobody, I think only one person out of like hundreds ever asked me, what do you think? I think they were just so happy to <laughs> oh, talk wow. ad nauseum that they didn't really care what I thought. That says something. Yeah. Probably a lot of them are pretty hungry for being able to relate to someone in that way too, because they right. deal so much with argumentation that's more aggressive. Yes. And, you know, I genuinely was interested in their process. So I wasn't there to judge or I I wasn't there in a role of a skeptic, even if Mm -hmm. I was internally, but to them, that wasn't our relationship. So, you know, I think a lot of them felt free to open up and talk about that stuff as a result. I I think that we've experienced with our time with many different groups, but I particularly think of the flat earth proponents that, that they get excited at the thought of professional or academic or even media attention. 
And so they're willing to open up because I, I think they feel that what they have to say and what they believe is worthy of that attention and yes. can even bear the scrutiny. Did you get that sense as well? I did very much so. Um, and so, you know, and, and to a certain extent, as you guys know very well, like if you're approaching somebody, you do have to show a bit of respect, right? You have to show like, I'm, I'm coming to you not as somebody who is like looking down on you, what you think. Um, I have my own beliefs that are different, but I genuinely want to hear what you have to say. And so it worked, you know, it, it was, it was much easier to get people to talk than I actually thought. What was your main takeaway from having all these conversations? Was it more about learning where their headspace is at? And if so, what was sort of the main takeaway there? Or was it more about how do we have these conversations and potentially change minds? It really was. I mean, the way it started was, okay, so how do we have more productive debates or conversations? And I ended up, the way that a lot of researchers have is that because of that self-sealing quality of evidence, it's very difficult. And what I came to is to say, I don't think debate is necessarily our best avenue for responding. Mm -hmm. Sometimes we think of responding to people and debate as the same thing. Uh, mm -hmm. So my, mm -hmm. what I came mm -hmm. to is that I do think these things demand responses. So like when Trump says something that's so completely egregiously wrong, a response is required. But responding to the person directly doesn't get very far. But instead, I think it's upon us to figure out what is driving this. So like QAnon, for example, you're not ever going to talk somebody out of their beliefs in a debate, but you can sort of understand. So what is this? What is driving oh, so many different types of people into this? And let's respond more to like the wider public threads that are pulling these people together. So that's interesting. So you you kind of say it's ineffective really to have these direct conversations, at least at least with any goal of disabusing someone of these really strongly held beliefs. But yeah. but you also point out that ignoring it is also not a good strategy. Right, exactly. So yeah. what is left to us? I think to understand, it's not it's not really easy to understand. I mean, I'm really, I, I did all my research. I was done with it when QAnon for, sort of popped its head up. So I didn't spend a lot of time with it. But I'm interested in it just for my own reasons to understand. Um, for example, I'm really fascinated by the, the research that shows that a lot of QAnon people don't necessarily have political affiliations or identifications. In fact, these mm -hmm. are people largely who you know, haven't been involved in the voting process over the years. They're not maybe even registered. And so, mm. whereas I think I thought beforehand, oh, they must be like primarily right wing and have this, it's not for them a political ideology. And so the way that I've sort of come to understand it is that the fact that there is um, sort of a strand of a certain type of apocalyptic evangelical thought is important to it. The fact mm -hmm. that you know, even the strands of what we saw with the satanic panic never really fully disappeared. It kind of carried on and yeah. lived in other ways. All of that stuff's really important to understand, even though it doesn't necessarily show up today. So, you know, try to figure it out that maybe this isn't necessarily a political happening uh, as much as it might seem. It seems to be because it's gathered around this, but I think there's a lot more going on to it underneath the surface. Yeah, it's always so hard to know whether someone moved from the evidence to their politics or their politics to their evidence, but it's probably best to assume that they moved from the evidence to the politics because then you're at least going to engage them in a more, um, you know, uh, open-minded, compassionate, charitable way. 
Yeah. Part of what I think it helped me through the book to understand is that it's not, these are not people who are just ignorant. Yeah. No matter how much you think they are 100% wrong and even, you know, pathological or doing damage, is that out of ignorance? And so that's a, that's one possible starting Mm -hmm. point. Um, And so just like Cass Sunstein, I disagree with, you know, that take where Cass says, you know, conspiracy theorists they just need the right kinds of evidence and mm. that's what we should give them i think well it's, it's just a lack of knowledge mm. it's not you, that you need to feed right. it to them you know right not quite it's not that no. oh interesting you mentioned the book can you tell us a bit about your book yeah it's uh it came out last april it's called awful archives and i end up it's written uh, for you know people who are interested in a lot of rhetorical theory academic stuff but i just end up looking at like it was a question that I found myself asking as I was in this research, which was like, these people have mounds of evidence. It's mm. not as if we you know. We mm. tend to say like conspiracy theorists, they're making these claims without having any evidence. And I'm like, it's certainly not the case with these folks. They've got way, way too They've much They've got numbers up stuff. the wazoo. They'll talk your yeah. ear off about thermite <laughs> or whatever it is. Yeah. And so that it's like, so what is going on then? Is it that, you know, the, they just have all kinds of bad evidence or what exactly was happening. And so, you know, I was trying to understand that part of part of the gathering process is part of what's involved in the, I want to say work of conspiracy, but the act of conspiracy thinking as a mode, you're collecting more and more and more. Like the worst thing that could happen is if, you know, the government would come out and say, you know what, you guys are totally right. We did 9-11. It's all mm-hmm. done. Mm-hmm. You're totally right. Go <laughs> go do your own stuff because then it's over, right? Yeah. Um, mm. and, and I think that there is a part that it is the sort of constant action of like going and looking and searching that is the treasure important. Hunt. Yeah, it's really important. It's sort of like that rabbit hole. You know, we've all gone down through rabbit holes in various ways. And we know that that does something. It has an activity, whether it's like a dopamine hit or or an identity, a kind of identity. This is who I am. Yeah, that's interesting. Yeah. It kind of speaks to how it fills this role as, as a hobby. And I'm trying not to use the word obsession, but, you know, like something for you to do. It's an active role in gathering all of these alternative pieces of information and, and kind of selectively yeah. curated information and packaging it. Well, and if it all if it all comes out, you know, and everybody's like, you're right, we'll be completely transparent. You were right all along. Now all of us are in the same position, right? I don't have anything mm. extra special that these other people yeah. don't have. I'm not somehow able to set myself apart. I think that's important. Certainly yeah. with QAnon. Almost sounds like they don't want everybody to agree with them. I think, I don't know that they would say that because that's, the discourse is like, you know, wake up and, you know, but if we all woke up, right? And we all tomorrow were like, QAnon, you guys are right, 100%. Then we're kind of back to square one where there's part of that identity is now gone. We're all sort of in the same boat. This is interesting because I really identify with that characteristic, with like wanting to, oh, hi, golly, my cat jumped in my lap. (laughs) Yeah, I really identify with sort of loving the trail down the rabbit hole. Me too. And wanting to get at the inner story beneath the mainstream story. That's a lot of the work that we do with, you know, looking at, say, a cult leader's history. What does he say his history is and what's the real history? You know, that stuff fascinates and excites me. So I get that. And I try really hard not to like label myself by where my 
brain is at. So this is one of the reasons I don't love being called like a critical thinker or a skeptic and things like that is because I feel like it sort of positions me outside of everybody else. Mm -hmm. And then that's not very inviting for everybody else to join me. Um, And it can also, as you're saying, sort of prejudice you against accepting when your work is done, saying, oh, good, I convinced people, sweet. You know, uh, I never had anything special, so that makes sense. (laughs) And moving on. Yeah, so how do you feel about terms like that, like skeptic and critical thinker and stuff? Do those rub you the same way? So I I teach a class, an undergraduate class on conspiracy theory rhetoric. And one of the things that I do, like we use Michael Shermer book to start off with, and I say, Mm -hmm. we're going to take a skeptical approach. And a lot of them already come into it with like this misunderstanding of what skepticism means. You have to talk about well, what does it mean? Doesn't mean you're doubting everything. It means something very different. Uh, and I like the way that Shermer, I think it's Shermer who describes like, you know, the Greek, original Greek is, you know, just like pause. To look again. Yeah. yeah, like pause mm-hmm. for a second. And so I think that's an approach to the world. That's not like who I am, you know, so I can take a skeptical right. approach without saying I'm a skeptic. Cause I know people who say I'm a skeptic <laughs> and that it becomes a personality. <laughs> and I think yeah. it's, it's a mode. And people on both sides of a belief will try to lay claim to that title as well. Yeah, yeah absolutely. So, I mean, that's really, really important to know that things like post-truth and skeptic, they're used just as much by, <laughs> you know, both sides of some kind of an issue. Absolutely. I can think of someone who I would guess would probably label himself skeptical of the current mental health industry, and you have a personal involvement with him. So this is how we ended up chatting a little bit ago, is that you have a personal history with our old friend, Jerry Mungadzi. And I know this is this took like a lot of bravery on your part to talk about because you are an esteemed professor, a published author, and you have this personal history that's kind of hard to dig into. So first of all, thank you. Thanks. So as much or as little detail as you want to give us, give us the basic um, outline of of your history with with good old Dr. J. I I have to say the first time I, I think I was like standing in my bathroom and I saw you tweet about, it was during his, uh, coloring thing like here's a new episode and i was like jerry mangazi and i was like what the we we might need to remind people who don't that name sounds familiar but maybe they don't remember so when we were in texas we visited this practitioner who was kind of associated with bob larson and spoke at his conference that we attended and he can diagnose problems with your life by having by by looking at a scan of your brain and the really fun revelation for us was that the scan was actually just a diagram <laughs> of the brain that he gave you and had you color with crayons <laughs> and then he would diagnose you based on your coloring of your brain just reminding and he's everyone. colorblind, <laughs> and he's colorblind. <laughs> correct uh, well Okay, well, anyway, so that's the guy. When yes. I saw the name and I thought, what is he doing? He started all this much later. So I was introduced to Jerry Magadzi when um, this is, I was trying to think, this is exactly 30 years ago because uh, I was 16. So this is 1991. Oh, wow. The sort of shortened version of the story was that I grew up in a very, very evangelical family uh, for most of my childhood. We were in the Assemblies of God Church mm-hmm. and then sort of, you know, independent mm-hmm evangelical churches. 
but I was like a normal 16 year old kid, you know, with like, I don't think extremely problematic, but I would say I was very headstrong and doing typical 16 year old things, but it very much concerned my parents. And so my, and in certain evangelical churches, you know, that relationship of parental responsibility and rebellion is a word that gets so it's taken very seriously because you know you're actually sinning against god if you allow your children to sin and mm, so it's taken mm-hmm. very very seriously and are we talking about typical stuff smoking doobies making out with boys i yes yeah, so like having or sex girls. or drinking and you know that kind sure. of thing and you know not really loving church a lot you Ooh. know and making it clear mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. you know spirit I, 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 of rebelliousness I will say that at that time I was having a lot of doubts and, you know, which is, was also scary for me because I, you know, grew up very oh. frightened of going to hell and, and all these, all these yeah. things. And so I, I, I think I got into a trouble. I, I lied about where I was one weekend and did the very typical, almost like, you know, teenage movie thing where I said, I'll be at this person's house. But I said, oh, we're at this other person's house. So I still don't know. I, I can't piece it back together exactly how my parents came to be recommended Benghazi. It was called Benghazi and Associates then. We lived mm. in Dallas. Yeah. Um, he had a, a practice in suburban Dallas. But this was right at the time when MPD, as it used to be called, multiple personality disorder, was like the explanation for everything. And it was also sort of the height of the satanic panic. And it was really sweeping Mm -hmm. through a lot of churches like ours, Mm -hmm. um, where a lot of this discourse was. So somehow my parents said, okay, you know, this is a, your behavior is just unimaginable. We're going to take you to see it's beyond what we think a normal 16 year old would, would be. So they took me to see Jerry Magadzi, who I thought just is a regular therapist, right? So I'm just going to be sitting in this regular therapy. Mm -hmm. And I got there and it was a very, I had from the beginning of the sense of like, this is very different. So you're given this questionnaire, I was giving a long, you know, sort of questionnaire to, they asked me questions. And I remember thinking like, these aren't questions that make sense to me to be asked. So things like, you know, mm. um, do you ever lose track of time and you don't know where you are? And I think, oh, uh, yes. Kind of like our Scientology personality test. So. Yeah, it's it's very much, or, and then the very vague questions that you feel like, Anybody could answer. So, you know, are there ever any, yep. you know, words or sounds or songs that, you know, you have strong reactions to and you don't know why? And I think, <laughs> well, yeah. I mean, maybe. Yeah. I mean, yeah. I sure. But, you know, I am a human. Yeah. <laughs> you know, and so I, you know, it was a very long Easily losing things. Yeah. I think I've got yes. it right here. Yeah. Oh. That, I mean, <laughs> um, yeah. This is in his book. He's still using oh. it. Oh, Wow. Yeah. Forgetting easily, lost childhood memory, losing time, memory blanks, easily losing things. Yes. Finding things with no memory of getting them. Yes. Accused of saying things that you don't remember saying. Oh, no. (laughs) Right? Hearing your name called with no one present. Like, who hasn't had these experiences? Lost time. That's alien abduction, right? (laughs) Yeah. Could be. Or, like, do you ever hear people, you know, sounds... Like you said, like, do you hear somebody calling your name or do you ever like hear voices talking to you? And I'm like, well, I mean, I guess my own internal monologue. I mean, I'm not quite sure. It's really hard to gauge what I mean. So I think like, 
I guess. So unsurprisingly, at the end of it, you know, then they're like, you have multiple personality disorder. That day. I think we started therapy like right away. So talking to my parents, you know, obviously. And one of the funny things is that, you know, they're sitting down with me, uh, Mangazi. And by the way, at that time, his practice was so packed. So he had Mm. a number Mm. of therapists working for him, many of whom, and I've tried to go back through any kind of records I could find, public records or whatever, to figure out what exactly was happening. A lot of them were still going through their master's counseling program. So I don't know how licensing stuff works like that, oh. you know, that kind of thing. So but, these are maybe mm-hmm. his associates or people he knew from Dallas Theological Seminary or maybe his Christian psychology young, associations. Yeah, or people going through, still getting their master's degrees. But um, I remember sitting so and working with somebody. he was probably their somebody. supervisor. Yeah, he was the he was the supervisor. That was how it was explained to me. But the funny thing is, that same day they said, you know, it's sort of like, have you ever seen Sybil, the movie Sybil? Don't mm. go home and read no. it, or don't go watch it, you know, because I don't want you to get any like like okay. They but didn't want to color. The first thing I'm going to do, right? I'm like, what? Yeah, was right. it because they were worried about you seeing something that they thought would be a bad influence on you, or that they thought you would maybe uh, get ahead of the game? And I think it was that. And this is good. This would be good if if I think what they were doing was actually like mm-hmm. valid therapy is to say, like, you don't want to kind of prejudice, you know, what you're thinking. Right. So so you don't you just know. recreate the show in your own. Behavior. Right. And that would I, that's that's a perfect thing to tell somebody. But what ended up happening throughout the you know year or so of therapy was nothing short of, you know, sort of creating a co-creating a narrative, you know, co-creating a fantasy. Yeah. So, yeah, it didn't really match up. But um, and even if they were the ones who had seen Sybil and were were driving <laughs> this uh, recreation. Now, did you have mostly FaceTime with Jerry Mungadzi or were you also working with some of the associates? So initially uh, I worked with Jerry. He at that time he had his his practice, which was, had a lot, it was individual therapy. They had group therapies. He also, they had inpatient, a hospital, um, I think in yeah. Bedford, I think at least one, maybe two. Oh, wow. So he was very, very involved. They had a special MPD wing of a, one of the, you know, I don't call it like mental hospitals there. Um, so yeah, it was called like Meadowfield, something like that. Yes. You know, like one of those sorts of names, something along those mm-hmm. lines. But at that time, I think he was very involved with it because, I mean, frankly, that's where a lot of money would be, <laughs> you mm. know, um, in, if I'm being just really cynical about it. <laughs> so a lot of his therapy work ended up sort of being farmed out to a lot of his folks with like kind of frequent check-ins with him. I, I remember sitting down with him for the first couple of months and then being switched over to the therapist that he was supervising. Okay. Now, I know we're going to want to hear more about Jerry Mungadzi and and this practice, but this wasn't your first intervention that your parents had had with you. You'd already been sent somewhere else. Yes. Can you tell us about that a bit? Yeah, it's a complicated, like the way that all this happened ends up being very complicated and, and crazy. So again, being a the rebellious. So the Mangazi thing was like the last resort for them. That was their last thing. Oh, okay. When I was 15, my church recommended, you know, this is the same story that you see a lot. If you've seen the documentary Kidnapped for Christ, it's a very mm-hmm. similar situation where there was a Christian girls boarding school 
did very little school. And it was actually a Jenny's farm in putting Boston, up the, Texas. The air yes, quotes, I got it. Boarding got school, quote unquote. Scare quotes. <laughs> and there's a lot of these same, you know, same, same stories where, um, you know, you'll have ours was only girls. Um, there's a lot of just girls, just boys. You end up doing like a lot of hard labor, but primarily this is you attend chapel twice a day and it's a heavy mm-hmm. emphasis on deliverance, <laughs> deliverance uh, work being done. Exorcism. Yeah. Y- yeah. Right. I mean, we never used the term exorcism. Uh, for us, it was always deliverance. Yeah. So that was mm-hmm. always the context. And and my parents believed in that. And so girls would come and, you know, I had this experience too, where, you know, if you're, if you're rebellious in some way, or if you're headstrong, or if you're whatever it is, if you have an eating disorder, whatever it is, it's not you. It is the demon of X, Y, or Z. And so it's it's important for you to participate in your deliverance. You guys just went through the whole big series about this. Right, right. And it gave the eating disorder demon or whatever. Yeah. Root him out and then the problem's gone. Yeah. The easiest thing to do in that situation for most of us, and I certainly am one of these, is that you learn very quickly how to how to play along, right? How to do, just say what they want you to say. Because otherwise Um, you're going to be sitting there for hours them fishing for their conclusion that they know is going to happen. So you're like, well, let's shortcut to it then and make everybody happy. And the sooner for like these girls, and I've read a lot of narratives, people who went through very similar things, the sooner you can sort of show I'm, I'm delivered. I'm, I'm good to go home now. You know, you can send me me alone. I'm not going to be the same person. If you rebel, if you, (laughs) you know, drag your heels in any way, you're going to spend more time Mm -hmm. there. So, right. Or um, I'm just going to be extra good at keeping it secret. Yeah, exactly. Yes, exactly. And, and I mean, part of it is, you know, even if I'm, I'm, I am one of the, though I said, I'm not like, I would never describe myself as a skeptic. I am, I'm curious and I'm, I, ask questions about everything. Mm -hmm. So, Mm -hmm. you know, this to me just felt like, then what's even at that age, I thought, if if everything about me is, you know, a demon, you know, my, my rebelliousness, which to me is not necessarily rebelliousness, but it's questioning about the Bible, or I have questions about this stuff, then where am I? It's it, it serves. And so does the, I think the therapy, both that kind of exorcism or, or deliverance, and the kind of stuff that happened with a lot of people, women, especially in MPD, is that mm-hmm. who you are becomes so small because all your characteristics are attributed mm-hmm. to, you know, right. your other personalities or the demons or something. And then it's like, well, then who am I? Mm-hmm. You know, I'm. Oh, yeah. you get erased completely. And it's it's especially damaging, I think, for for girls who go through that. I mean, the, the deliverance stuff for me, the saddest part is when children but especially like teenagers go through that because you're forming your identity at that moment and so to be told that's not really you we'll get rid of that yeah i don't think we mentioned it this place that your father drove you 157 miles to visit when you were 15 was called the christian farm for girls yes gateway christian farm for girls Oh my yes. goodness. Fog. Why? Yeah. <laughs> Why farm? Why would you put It was a farm. farm. It was okay. just it was a farm. But, so we uh you know, it was the very But it makes it sound like you're being farmed. <laughs> like you're being like they're growing girls. Yeah. 
It sounds terrible. I, I, I've gone back and it, it switched hands, I don't know, maybe like 10 years after I left. I mean, I just sort of put all of, once I left, I'm like, I put this all into a box. But I wish I had kept a, something. Oh, sorry, because- a literal a literal box or you filed away in your brain? I wish I had a literal box. I just put it in like oh, a right. mental, emotional box. But I do think that there was some like, you know, clever metaphors about that kind of growing, you know, growing strong Christian women or growing that kind of thing. So I don't think it was lost on them that it was a girl's <laughs> farm, maybe. Yeah. Okay. So how long were you at the Gateway Christian Farm for Girls. I was there for nine months. Then oh, wow. I okay. came home and unsurprisingly was not in a better space than I was Yeah, I was going to say, clearly it wasn't seen as a success because next you were sent to Jerry Mungadzi. And I had, you know, I think the experience of being in that place, it, it profoundly affected my I would say relationship with Christianity, mm-hmm. uh, my mm-hmm. understanding of Christians, but also like my own kind of relationship with God. And so as I'm going through that, going back to the church, I think at one point I just said, I don't think this is God. I don't think this is how God would want people mm. to behave. And if it is, then mm-hmm. I think God's a jerk. Yeah. I remember saying that, but I don't <laughs> think God is a jerk. I think mm-hmm. this is a misinterpretation, which of course was hmm. not, not, it didn't go over well, I'll say. I like how you explain yeah. that process. Cause I, you know, I think so often when we're trying to figure things like this out, especially as kids, there's certain things we can stick pins in and say, okay, well, I know God's a good guy. So let's stick a pin in that. So we know yeah. that's correct. And it's kind of like one of those little puzzles where you know that, you know, Mr. Green and Mr. Brown both live on a street that starts with M <laughs> and Mrs. Scarlet has a yeah. cat or something like that. And you're trying to fill out these little <laughs> things that you know to be true. Yeah. So we try to fill in those, those missing gaps of, of yeah. what we know to be true. And it sounds like you went through that. Also, could you fill in maybe just a little bit of detail? I'm sure, sure our listeners would want to know about what a day at the Christian Farm for Girls looked like. What did they have you do? Was there labor involved? Did you sing? Did they say prayers over you and cast out demons? So you wake up at the same time. I think we're able to sleep in maybe on Saturdays, but you you wake up at the same time. You have to get right out of bed. Um, You have chores first thing in the morning. Then you go to chapel in the morning. School is like a lot of these kinds of places. It's like independent school. There's no teacher Um, Because there's girls of all ages there. So you have sort of these Christian learn at your own pace workbooks. Oh, like Becca books or something like that? Yeah, but you sort of like fill in the workbook and then, you know, they have the answer key. They check against the answer key and then, you know, you're right or you're wrong. But nobody's teaching you. You're just sort of going through it. Okay, It's a very minimal sense of school. Hmm. Um, You get done Mm -hmm. with school. You have, again, evening chores to do. So the evening chores, they'll change so it may be outside work so we did have i think we had two horses two old horses you might go feed the horses there's a lot of ditch digging for some reason like a lot of these places it's a lot of ditch digging there's you know obviously cleaning a lot of holes in digging uh there's you 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 dig the ditch and she'll fill it (laughs) there's you know so responsible for cleaning obviously the houses so there's um maybe Three, I forget at the time, maybe like three or four houses that will have, you know, four bedrooms each. And you either have, you'll have a roommate or you have, or you're in a bunk bed with like three other people. Mm-hmm. There's a 
dorm or house mother who lives there. You're saying different um, ages. What what are the range of ages? I think the youngest, I could be wrong. I, the youngest I remember is 14. It goes to 18. Okay. So, I mean, legally, when you're 18, you could walk out the front gate if you wanted to. Mm. But uh, I don't know too many people who did that. You know, you most, be, especially if they were there for a long time, they just opted to stay, finish high school there. Mm. There's no, there's no talking about any secular things. So no mm. secular music, no secular television shows. You don't talk about boys. You don't talk about wow. movies. There's not, no books that are not, you know, sort of pre-approved Christian. Um, your letters wow. are read in and out, going in, going out. Mm-hmm, of um, course. Oh man. So you're just saying, I love it here. Yes. <laughs> Absolutely. Your phone calls are monitored. You get after three months, you go home. After three months, you get like a one day outing with your family. At six months, you can go home for a weekend. At nine months, you can go home for a weekend. Hey, Springer. It's it's intense. It's really intense. Yeah. You sent us an account that you'd written. One of the the co-leaders, founders of this, it was a married couple who ran this. Yes. And yes. the the man, by his own admission, he was telling the story of this willful young woman that he forced to sit in his lap and would. Oh, oh, like, that's actually oh, yeah. that's pigs in the parlor that I started with. Oh, I see. Okay, so Frank, that wasn't uh, that wasn't. The that farm. is a book that was introduced to us from the farm that they used, okay. and it's actually one of the oldest. I don't know if you're in your deliverance or exorcism stuff you I've came across, but I've heard of it, but I've never read it. It's wild. So it's one of the very first and still used, I think it was written in 73. It's still one of the most common deliverance manuals out there. Oh. And it's wild. If you ever get a chance to see a copy, there's all kinds of used copies. So right there under Ritual Romanum is uh, Pigs in the Parlor. Pigs in the parlor. Yes. That's the one that I I know most that, you know, if it's a Pentecostal charismatic deliverance ministry, they're going to use that. And they still kind of set both of them really set. They had a number of them. They also wrote a specific deliverance manual for children and teens. Wow. You know, they're sort of like the name, but that's what was used as part of our deliverance. So the ways that they were told to talk to a demon is from okay. there. Inspired by this guy okay. who had helped yes. this girl. Were, were there yeah. any men at the facility? Did, were you aware of any abuse? Uh, no. So there was there were no men okay. um, at the at the facility. I mean, there was one sort of older handyman, mm-hmm. but primarily it was women. And not to say that women can't abuse people, but uh, yeah. And as far as I know. I, I mean, I, I really, I can't speak to anybody else. I would say there was no, like, sexual, as far as sexual abuse kind of things go, mm-hmm. I would say that it's a lot of, it's a lot of emotional abuse just by way of, yeah. you know, promising to help people who really do need help. So a lot of the girls come with depression, yeah. you know, things like depression or eating disorders or, you know, real problems that really do need attention and are not specifically given any attention. And that's deliberate you know because Mm -hmm. your problems are not psychological your problems are not Mm -hmm. you know through mental health your problems are that you have to let the holy spirit guide you and that's not what's happening right right now yeah yeah and then there's that false hope i'm gonna feel better i don't and now i don't really feel like seeking out the next person who might help me either because my trust that that's gonna work is now diminished yeah and I, i think it also introduces a lot of why do i have all these demons, what did I do? You know, and things like yeah. it be, yeah, there's new a problems. paranoia about the world. Like 
is it because I watched this movie? Is it because I listened to this? I read this book. I know this person yeah. or my grandmother did something that I don't even know about. And maybe you do have real problems that need addressing, but you're off in some random field, either yeah. in ditches or a yeah. metaphorical field, chasing down problems that aren't really problems. Yeah, it's. Uh, mm. I think it left a lot of girls sort of broken after they came out. And I think I definitely felt broken and not any happier than when I went in. Sure. Did uh, you believe all that? Were you like, okay, it must be a demon? Or did you still have some kernel of, eh, I'm not so sure? I think the, the, the thing that always makes me sort of understand people who get involved in cults or something is that when you become isolated, whether by your own choice or, you know, just however you are, your the your ability to sort of push back on anything or at least think abstractly becomes so much so muted over time that you start to think mm -hmm. like I don't think I believe this but mm. everybody else around me sort of saying this mm. and backing it up with bible verses you know so to say like and who am I to say even if I was sort of having my doubts the idea that I would say, I don't believe this. They would say, well, God says it right here. Are you doubting? Are you doubting the word of God? You're like, right. no, uh, no, no. That's I mean, one of those things I far. stuck a pin in. Yeah, I can't, <laughs> yeah. I can't doubt that. Mm -hmm. I, you know, it's, it becomes very frightening. So I remember sort of internally having these private negotiations with God. Like, I don't feel comfortable with this. This is actually kind of scaring. It's scary. It's um, to witness a deliverance of somebody else can be a very frightening experience, especially when you're very young yeah. and um, it's not, it doesn't leave you feeling, at least for, I think for a lot of us, it didn't leave us feeling like ready to praise God and mm. for the miracle. It felt very dark <laughs> huh. and it felt, you know, creepy yeah. and And yet it felt uh, actual, it felt real, right? Like you thought something spiritual was happening. And I think it's really easy. And anybody who's, you know, gone through a, a Pentecostal charismatic church, who's ever spoken in tongues and, you know, you do get caught up in, in this. It's really hard to explain. Like, how do you get caught up and, and find yourself suddenly speaking tongues all of a sudden or slain in the spirit, you know, or thinking like, yes, I guess I do have, you know, you're speaking with the voice of answering these questions as if you're have a you're a demon, right? It's easy yeah. to kind of get caught up in that, in the frenzy, you know, there's a lot of yeah. frantic energy that can, you could feed off of. Yeah. Okay. 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 Hang on there, guys. Hang on. Yes. Brilliant, brilliant scholar and two dummies. Hold on. Carrie, uh, Carrie, uh, Poppy, right? Yes. Yes. Oh, I'm sorry, Russ. Yes. I'm Carrie Poppy and you're it's, Russ Blachew. It's No, it's, it's Russ. Russ Blachew. <laughs> You got, got it right, it. except for the Ross, yeah. <laughs> um, I hate to interrupt this, but I'm coming at you from the future to say, let's talk about bras ears. I'm sure Jenny has nothing to say about it, so I will do all the talking. <laughs> Jenny, you be quiet. <laughs> If you're talking about brassiers, uh, you're probably, mm -hmm. if you know what you're talking about, you're probably talking about third love. Am I ever? That's exactly where I was going with this. I love third love. They are my third love. I don't know where that name comes from. I guess my, oh, is it my two boobs and then my bra? That's a weird thought. I love that this boob. Weird. I love this other boob. <laughs> but what I, but if I had to love something next, it would be the thing that holds them up. I doubt that's the origin, but you do have me curious now. 
<laughs> well, listen, I really do love Third Love. I think they make terrific bras. And I'm so happy to say that this episode is sponsored in part by Third Love. And you know, Every Third Love bra is designed for all-day comfort and support, and they're made with signature memory foam cups, no-slip straps, and a scratch-free band. Oh my god, that scratch-free band is great. It doesn't dig into you, and I don't need to know my size all the time. I already know. I bought the bra. It's the little things that count, and they put a lot of thought into their product, and it shows. And they have cup size AA through I, including half cups, and bands sizes 30 through 48. And they just launched a fitting room on their website. So oh, nice. Yeah, they have a quiz that focuses on your size, your breast shape, your current fit issues, and your personal style. It helps you to deliver bras and underwear that are perfect perfect for you and third love stands behind their products if you don't love your order exchanges and returns are free now i'm just picturing the entire staff standing behind a row of bras we stand behind them now we can tell people we've literally (laughs) stood behind maybe they do but i'm sure metaphorically as well they support their no They support their supportive products (laughs) they take pride in the product they offer indeed and now They are introducing the much-anticipated lounge by Third Love. It's a loungewear that's made to wear anywhere. Lounge, lounge in it. I I have one of their shirts. I like it a lot. That's fantastic. If only you were spending a lot of time at home, maybe you could use some (laughs) loungewear. Okay. (laughs) God, I wish. Just kidding. I'm here all the time. Well, Third Love knows... Your one true fit is out there. So right now, they're offering our listeners 20% off of your first order. Wow. So go to thirdlove.com slash ono right now to find your perfect fitting bra and get 20% off your first purchase. That's thirdlove.com slash ono, O-H-N-O, for 20% off today. It'll be your third love after your first two boobs. Okay, but but Ross, Ross, Jenny, shush, Jenny, hold on. Okay, I've been thinking. I want to make a place on the internet for all my thoughts, feelings, desires, ambitions. Okay, but I'm like, how do you even get your thoughts onto the internet? You know? Yeah. Well, first you have to invent the internet. And okay. then you Can't have to no problem. You have to set up your own server. You need to install oh. uh, software. You're going to have to really? get licensing, and then uh, oh. you're you're going to have to learn programming languages and markup oh, languages Lord. in order. Yeah, it's a lot of work. Or or just hear me out. You could use okay. Squarespace. What's that? Well, it's a website that you go to, you sign up. In fact, what you can do is you can just start building a website. Just make the website, start dropping things in there, use the custom design templates and make it look just like you want it to. And then you can purchase your domain name to go with it. You can publish it and people can find your exciting idea on the internet. Wow. Okay. Okay. I'm listening. This is very interesting. This sounds a little over my head though. Like I'm kind of a dummy. I've never made a website. Are you sure this is something I could use? Yes. In fact, anyone can use it. It doesn't matter if you're a jewelry designer or a clothing designer, or if you're a hair, or if you're a makeup artist, Hmm. or if you're an accessory or a designer or a nutritionist or a wellness coach or a sports team. You can use Squarespace to design your website and make your dream a reality. Okay, what if I'm like a museum or yep. a photographer or an agency? You could be a healthcare. A restaurant. Really? Okay, okay. 
hey, you know what? I'm going to give it a go. And I've heard that Squarespace gives you access to beautiful templates created by world-class designers. Is that true? You've heard correctly. You can also blog or publish content. You can promote your physical or even your online business. You can announce an upcoming event or a special project (laughs) and more. (laughs) What a perfect service. Well, listen... Now that I think about it, now that we've talked this through, I'm mm-hmm. remembering that I think they actually sponsored in part this episode. Oh, yeah. Yes, they did. Oh, my God. Duh. Well, that's Harry, cool. Duh. Not only do they make a great service for creating your own website, not only do they offer powerful e-commerce functionality, not only do they offer a new way to buy domains and choose from over 200 extensions, and not only have they won multiple Stevie Awards for their 24-7 customer the support. But they also support the kind of podcasts that you love and listen to. Well, I'm going to check out squarespace.com slash oh no for a free trial. And then when I'm ready to launch, I'm going to use the offer code oh no to save 10% off my first purchase of a website or domain. I have a feeling that that sequence of events will work out very well for you. Thank you. Thank you. I think so. Okay. Well, just continuing with our natural talking, I... Just got uh, a telegram in the mail um, that's, ugh, they sent it to me, but it says Ross Blotcher, and I'm, oh no, wait, say, it says Ross Blotcher, and I'm like, that's my friend, but anyway, whatever. I'm going to yeah. scan it and put it up on the screen for you. Okay. Oh, it really is a telegram. Okay, well, this is all in Morse code, but I think I can read it. It looks okay. like it's a message for Rick in Minnesota, and it's from... Your husband, Mark. Oh, that sounds nice. And Mark says, Rick, Rick in Minnesota, stop updating your database and listen up. Mark paid good money for this Jumbotron. And if you listen, you're going to be able to find your gift. Gift? That's right. Tone Kajula. I don't know if that's how you say that. So listen up. <laughs> Look in the Dominion, where killer bunnies hold their robo-rallies. Happy 25th from your husband, Mark. Ross, what does tonkadieu mean? Tonkadieu. That looks French. French? Yeah. Yeah, let's see. I don't know. They're in Minnesota. You can't speak French in Minnesota. See? That's what I'm saying. Oh, tonkadieu. It means your present. Well, well now we, it's making sense. Well, we learned something and Rick learned something. Absolutely. Hopefully. Yeah. Or he already knew. But yes. Put down that database and go looking. All right. Happy birthday, Rick. Okay. Now back to Jenny. Okay. So how much time was there between your experience at the farm and then being brought to Jerry Mungazi? I would say probably that was about six months, I would okay. say. So because, pretty much the next step. Yeah, because came home and, you know, was still even more than ever is feeling like I just want to be a teenager. I want to be a normal teenager. Yeah, I, you know, yeah. sleep in my um, own bed. I want to sleep in my own bed. I want to be a normal teenager. I want to go out with friends. I want to do these things. And I was probably very angry at, you know, at the time with my parents, felt very betrayed. And from their end, they're thinking like, I don't understand. We don't understand why everything's not better. And rather than sort of understanding, I mean, I I have a teenager right now, so I understand like, it can feel like they're full of demons, you know, I mean, it it does. It's like, why are you not? Why are you like this? But um, I I think like, there, it was like, it can't possibly and it was so important for them 
because of their church, not to seem like they have a child who's out of control and not to have right. a child who is veering from the right path. Because that reflects on them as parents now. Yeah. And not in a way that, you know, my parents weren't, they weren't concerned with their status or anything. I think they were genuinely concerned. Oh my mm. God, you know, she's going to lose her soul. And, and oh, that's okay. on us. That's on us. Mm. Mm-hmm. All, oh, there, yeah, and there yeah, has to be some reason. Okay. Right. There has to be some reason. So if it's not demons, then maybe it's something else. You know, there's some explanation because, again, they're like, this isn't you, right? You're a sweet, obedient, kind person who loves Jesus. You love Sunday school. You love all these things. In fact, it's just like every kid when they're 10, 9, they're sweet, they're wonderful. And you become a teenager and you just start like you lose your shit for some reason. And Yeah. Oh, my gosh. This is such a perfect storm, though, that you're a teenager in the mid-90s in Texas, Texas. like slightly rebellious. You've already gone through the demon thing. Assemblies of God Church. Maybe it's something else. Yes. And now they find the one guy who's like, ah, I do demons and something else. Right. And guess what? I'm in Dallas too, baby. <laughs> so they it take really you right was. to Jerry Mangazi. Uh, God, the luck. It was it was amazing, perfect. If story. there is a God, he hates you. I know. I I mean, I was like, maybe it was the jerk <laughs> comment when I was younger. I don't know. Oh, <laughs> I think there okay. was something probably comforting for them to think, oh, okay, so this isn't her, and it's not us. We'll get this fixed without really even understanding anything about like what are the what is this therapy actually involving because they didn't know exactly what it was Mm. and I think that's part of that therapy is any kind of narrative you hear about sort of false memory and that kind of thing is like it's this kind of slow burn of you know you go in maybe for whatever problem, just depression or something. And then, you know, you find your, you wake up two years later and you're like, I think I'm, you know, part of this secret underground cult or it's this very mm. slow burn that happens. And nope, nobody would go into it if they think that that's going to be the end result. Yeah. Um, right? yeah. yeah. And I've noticed like from my own upbringing, there's a certain lowering of the defense shields when you know you're dealing with another Christian. Because you just think, ah, they're inspired by God. They're not going to be lying to me. They're not going to try to cheat me. They're not going to be doing anything unhealthy. And so you just, you don't criticize as much. I remember growing up, you know, if we saw the little fish icon on a business card or in the uh, yellow pages, we think like, oh, they're an honest contractor. We can hire them. It was very important for my parents. It's Christian therapy. So that's very important. But, you know, Jeremy Godsey... For whatever reason, I think he he's very good at presenting himself as very, very credentialed and somehow esteemed in a way that he doesn't really deserve, you know? Yeah. And But I, I think he does a good job of at least coming across to people that way. Looking back, I think, I don't know how, but it's his, it's just his manner. He seems like his bearing is very professional. He's, he's, you know, he seems like a really nice guy and friendly to talk to. And as Carrie and I mentioned, when we went to his office, it's festooned in various certificates and plaques. Yes. So it seems like it's Christian therapy, but it's, if you know, it's not just like church therapy. This is the real right. thing, right? A real honest to God psychologist. And yeah, so he's he talking really about the knows cerebellum. What he's doing. And yeah, yeah, 
<laughs> he knows he's he's gonna know like from the Christian angle, but then he's also got the science to back it up. So it's mm -hmm. like this guy really knows what he's doing. So I think we got through day one of your therapy with Jerry Mungazi before we <laughs> backed up. So he diagnoses you with multiple personality disorder. Uh, yes. At that point, he wasn't calling it dissociative identity disorder no. yet. Okay. No. In fact, that that all changed long after I would had right. walked away from all of that kind of stuff. And and so did some of the mainstream treatment of all of this has also changed somewhat. But yeah. but the treatment that you endured, for lack of a better word, also continues. There's also this version yeah. of psychology still out there. So once you had this diagnosis, what did the treatment plan look like? That's a great question. I mean, it took a long time to, you know, I remember in the early days, I, I remember thinking like, I don't know what we're doing here. So it starts mm. off very sort of like, I remember very early, they would say like, if you close your eyes, can you think of like, is there any name that you think of? Like, is there a name that you ever like kind of hear and you don't really know who that is, anything? And you know, okay. like, I immediately thought Candace. Yeah, like, I did. So, so, so Candace, okay. you know, like if, if I was your yeah. therapist, like, all right, Candace, let's go. I mean, let's think of who that is. Who is, how old do you think, how old is Candace? And you're like, hmm. 35. <laughs> right. Oh, oh, right. Okay. You okay. Know, you're like, I, I guess seven. And, you know, so like, what do you, what does Candace like to do? What is Candace, you know, so they're very, mm. it's like very slowly sort of like, helping you to co-create this idea that later they're going to say like, oh, this is one of your alters. That's who that is. And you're like, oh, okay. But, you know, looking back and I'm like, you just asked me to come up with a name. I mean, <laughs> anybody could yeah. do that, right? No. And right. so you keep asking, but not, you know, and I don't know what, a, I have very, very strong opinions about dissociative identity disorder and I have my own feelings about it, but I think, if there was a legitimate treatment for it, or if there's legitimate practice, this is not the way that you go about doing it, which is like, let's play imagination. Wacky wordies. <laughs> and, then, and then we'll attribute reality to it, that now this right. is real. Mm -hmm. It's like there's no breaks ever in this kind of therapy. There's not like ever a point Just where you're like, wait a minute. Yeah, wait a minute. That seems, let's shed a little bit of doubt on it just to play make sure that this is legitimate or there's nothing that ever sort of stops. So if you, or the, you know, sometimes you're like, so what happened this week? And I'll say, well, this happened and I got really upset. Was, you know, which is like, I'm in therapy now, you know, like my therapist will say, what happened this week? And I'm like, you know, I really still hate this, this person's really annoying me. And we'll talk about that. But in mm -hmm. this, this type of therapy, like everything is, both hyper symbolic, you know, it's everything's overcoated mm -hmm. with meaning. Right. And so if you're like, I, I got really mad about this or something happened, like, what made you so mad about that? Like, did that, what did Mary think about that? Now that you've had oh, some right. altars established, you know, oh. and you're like, oh, I guess that made Mary feel sad. And hmm. are there any memories of this happening to you when you're younger? And and you don't, the beautiful thing about this <laughs> from their end or the diabolical thing is that you don't have to have any memories of anything. Right. But if you're like, I don't remember any of that, but it seems familiar. So maybe Mary had 
a memory of it. Mm. And then it's just treated yeah. as if you had it, you know? Right. So how did you get led down this primrose path to satanic ritual abuse in particular? Did he bring up people standing in circles in robes? Or so, do you remember? So really early on, I mean, he's also at the same time, <laughs> he's also sort of, um, there's books that are recommended. So you might read, you know, mm -hmm. Michelle Remembers, like, oh, you should read oh, this. Great. Michelle Remembers, oh, read, wow. read Rabbit House. Give that to you. It oh, was wow. for everybody, like, oh, you should read this. But also he's, at the time, there are, uh, especially around this time, like Perfect Storm again, people from across the country. He was, he was leading seminars for local police departments mm. on SRA. And so he Excellent. was becoming sort of a um, satanic an ritual abuse for anyone. Right. And so there were several conferences at the time that was happening, happening mm -hmm. in Dallas that he was sort of a big part of. And so, you know, everybody's aware of it. So it's sort of like it was almost expected. You, If you have MPD, then you only have it because there was some kind of satanic ritual abuse. And if you yeah. can't figure out what it is, then you better start trying to figure out what it is. Because yeah. nobody has MPD without it. Wow. That was the impression it you got. Just wouldn't happen. And remember, like at this time, I'm sort of like having my response to, like, you know, sort of doubting God. And so that's taken us like, is there like, can you think of something at church? Is there something that really bothers you or is really, you know, significant to you? And then that's sort of like, yes, this is scary. Or I have a reaction to the cross, you mm. know, for some reason, mm -hmm. like, well, what could that mean? I mean, on today, I would say it's probably just because I was so fucking sick of church that, you know, that's that's what it is. But <laughs> but now it's or like it's a symbol of so someone's murder. Yeah, why are you have such a strong reaction? Then are, are there scary feelings? Like, do you do you ever feel sick or scared when you see that? And then like, well, <laughs> yeah, because my guess. parents sent me away for nine months. <laughs> <laughs> but again, it's like one of those things where. It erases who you are so much that you're like, yeah. well, I don't, although it would have been nicer than to actually like engage me in my like recent experience with that. But instead it's like, well, what could you ask inside? That's a very common question. Can you ask inside if somebody has these? And so you're like, okay. So you're sort of internally asking like, does anybody in here have bad experiences? Oh, yeah. Like, well, I kind of, th and you, because you have all this other stuff sort of floating around, like, I think maybe something bad happened, maybe with a cross, you know, maybe like, I don't know, maybe like at nighttime or something. And again, there's no break. So it's like, uh-huh. Yep. Yeah. Uh -huh. We've heard Tell this before. That. So are you yeah. uh, reclining? Are you in a hypnotic state? Uh, how are they preparing no. you for these sessions? As far as I know, I don't think he did. I can't say he, he didn't do it, but I don't think he did any kind of hypnotism. Okay. Um, we were just sitting on a tended sit in chairs, couches, that kind of thing. And um, were you alone with him during these sessions? Uh, yes. Yes. Okay. And, and there's never, it's always a direct thing. Like you're going to do this. So close your eyes and ask inside or mm. do this. And I think. Uh, it's very intimidating. So you just are like, okay, I guess this guy knows what he's doing. I mean, it's done in such a way that you'll never come up empty. There's no valid null response. No, not at all. And so, and when you give an answer, you're like, well, this is going to sound crazy if I say it, but like, maybe something bad happened with a cross at night. And then that's the right answer. You Jerry's know? like, he's I like, like crazy. Yeah, wow, what's wrong with that? Bingo. You know, it's like, yeah. I got, I got another one. I, I knew it. I, you know, caught him. Whether, you know, I don't, 
I, I can't judge whether he was what he really believes or, sincere. you know, yeah. I, I don't, I don't know. I think mm. there's a good chance that he also got caught up in that hype, mm-hmm. but you yeah. can see when you've given the right answer, you know, at heart, I'm always yeah. the A plus student at heart. So I'm like, I got an A on this one, yeah. right? Yeah, 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 yeah. So it sounds like over the course of these treatments, you were given memories. Can you, can you speak to what some Very of much. those were, if you're willing to share, and how real did they feel to you? And do they do they still kind of occupy a position in your in your mind? It always felt to me like I always felt like I was on the border between like this feels weird and like I don't know if it's real, but at the same time, everybody around me is acting like these adults, these people with degrees are seem like oh god, this is more than real. You have no idea. There's books on this, and there's all these things that say, yes, yes, this is real. And I also knew at the same time, because I was on the younger end of the kind of people getting this type of treatment, I saw, you know, I went, there was a few group meetings, primarily with like women who are middle-aged, women my mom's age, and their lives were falling apart, you know, in the same ways that you hear stories about this a lot. And I remember that scaring me really badly because these were women who had gone far down the rabbit hole, you know, and would say like, Mm -hmm. I don't speak to my family anymore because they are all multi-generational Satanists. My father happens to be a police officer, but that proves that he's in this. And I remember thinking like, Mm. I'm scared because I also, I wanted my own life. I was going to school. I was swimming and I was doing debate and, and then I had this stuff. And so it's always kind of like, I'm pulled into this because it feels like there's a... It's being demanded of you. There's momentum to it. And so maybe, maybe I didn't have any kind of vocabulary to question it or anything like that. But I do know, like, I think I kind of internally put breaks on where I thought that they wanted me to go. So, you know, it was very easy for... Coming up with new personalities is very easy. I don't Mm -hmm. think I necessarily knew I was just creating them out of the air but that was part of the easy part. Like, okay, so go inside and who wants to talk? Well, there's, you know, there's this other like little kid and, you know, maybe that's a personality, but they want to kind of dig into things. And so if you start, I remember when I finally started saying, I don't like this was around the time that they started suggesting like, you know, do you ever have, you ever think like maybe do your parents ever say certain things? Do your parents ever have something in the house that makes you feel weird? Okay, and, I was wondering you know, that, yeah. The word triggers is always, you know, something like, is there something that triggers you in the house? Meaning like, you mm. know, this picture. And I'm like, well, I have always hated this one picture we have. Well, that must mean something, right? It's not just like a picture that mm. is spooky or something like that. But that must be a trigger. At that time, I remember thinking like, wait a minute. We didn't have a lot of money. My family did not have a lot of money. They're paying for this. Mm. I mean, just logically thinking, mm. why would my parents put me in this therapy with you people? Right. If, they were doing if they're hell bent on my destruction. <laughs> that was the crazy yeah. part to me. And I do remember it was that suggestion where I thought, no. All the money. I have a lot of issues with my parents right now, but this is not one of them. And it was around <laughs> that time. I think that for me is what kind of you know, this is the straw that broke the camel's back was I thought, yeah, no, now you're now this is, feels like a fishing expedition. Mm. Yeah. 
Well, good on good on you for catching that. I'm sure there are many people in your situation who didn't, who just kind of went along. Yeah, and are still I mean, I could it. see, I could see where it gets. Like I said, I I had a life outside of this. You know, I was in school, and I was thinking about going to college, and I was doing all kinds of stuff. But if I had nothing, if I had nothing really going for me, there is the validation that comes with coming up with this fantastic, horrific story. You know, these stories. And people are not only believing you, but like constantly telling you how brave you are and, and how, oh my God, you are so, you're a survivor. I could imagine it being kind of validating. You feed off of it. Yeah, finally, you're getting a little bit of positive feedback from the adults around you. Yeah. Most of my stories were, you know, like, it would always be vague things where I'd say, you know, I remember when I was growing up, there was this church basement and it always felt like I always had weird feelings when I was down there in the church basement, like, you need to ask inside, what do you think happened in there? And then, you know, you can come up with any number of things like, well, maybe, maybe there was some kind of like, I was there at midnight sometime and something really bad happened. You know, you could fill in with whatever graphic yeah. details and the more graphic, the more validation you get, you know? Yeah. They right. want that dirt. They want yeah. seedy, dark, gross stuff. Yeah. And I think if anything, there was one of the things that I remember being pushed on a lot is that I didn't ever have super great details because mm. for me, I knew there must have been something down deep inside that I knew no matter what else, my parents are not somehow secret cult members. Mm -hmm. Whatever their flaws are, this is not part of it. You know, I know that I haven't been programmed by the CIA somehow. And yet... Mm. These are what Benghazi's patients believed. Yeah. There are people who sat right there and said, from the time I was born, I was specifically chosen to be programmed for the CIA. And I'm just thinking, whoa, you're a housewife in, in suburban Dallas. What are you what what are you talking about? Why do you think yeah. that this is where did this come from? It was at that point where I was tired of coming up with things. I was tired of being pushed in the direction of like family stuff. And so I started to come to sessions and say, I'm starting to doubt that any of this is real. Oh, you'd say that to him. I did. Yes. And wow, that good for you, this is much like the experience of talking to a conspiracy theorist. Of course, this means that they oh, were on proof. He's on the right track all along, you know, mm. and, and this uh, is yes. why like somebody mm. doesn't want you to uh. Oh, we're no. just making progress. This Everything is, is confirmatory evidence. Yeah, exactly. Again, cool. I don't think I didn't have <laughs> the language to say any of that. But I thought like, what? But I can see where that works. Like everything is always going to be a yes. Yeah, so how did you get yeah. yourself out of that sand trap? Like, um, What was the process? And sorry, what timeline are we on here now? How so far? Is, how long have you been with them? I had been, I think I started my junior year. And so this is my senior year. So I was also oh, okay. starting to think about going to college and, and doing these things. <laughs> yeah. and I Those are already like, such tough years, like they, without any of that stuff. I just remember the women, and I keep saying women because primarily his practice was primarily women. Um, mm -hmm. But I remember seeing them and thinking their lives are in shambles. They are not getting better. I see them. Yeah. They're getting worse. Their lives are worse now than before they started seeing yep. this guy. And I thought, 
I'm about to start my whole life. I want, I don't want this. It's, it's oppressive. It's awful. So I remember him telling me that I was like, yeah, we'll see. And so there was a summer before college. And so I was probably off doing my own stuff. And I don't know if I heard an interview or I, I still don't remember what it was. It must have been an interview where I saw somebody interviewed from the False Memory Syndrome Foundation. Hmm. Uh, right. And mm-hmm. it was uh, a parent of somebody who had you know, gone through the same type of therapy, but her daughter had cut her off and accused her of all kinds hmm. of things. And I learned about that organization and this thing called False Memory Syndrome. And I was like, huh, that's... That's really interesting. So I think I wrote to them. This is still like pre-internet stuff. So I think I wrote to them and they sent me their newsletter. And I think like all of these, what they're describing is all the other stuff that I've been experiencing, like the planting memories and the story or kind of feeding stories and all of this stuff. But then they also had a little column from Elizabeth Loftus (laughs) and she was talking about false memory and how that worked. And I was so fascinated by it. And so this is around right before my fall semester, my freshman year in college. So I'm kind of in this space where I'm thinking, I don't think any of this was right. I think this is all kind of BS. And I had one of those intro to psychology courses and very general. And one of the very first things we in our textbook is we start talking, we have this unit on memory. And then, of course, it's a study from Elizabeth Loftus. Mm-hmm. And I was like, oh, that's that's the same woman. That's the memory that's woman. The it's, <laughs> and I went up to my professor afterwards, who was like, this is a huge lecture. You look like the most bored professor on planet. I was like, I'm really interested in, in memory and Elizabeth Loftus. And where can I read more? And he didn't know. He was just teaching with the textbooks. He was like, I, I mean, I don't know. But, you know, she knows a lot about memory. And so I remember reading up everything I could about memory and realizing, oh, my God, all of this stuff, the way that they believe, you know, because it depends on somehow your brain's tracking perfect memories. Even if you can't recall, they're all there in perfect recall, mm-hmm. you know, so I right. can, just you know, to say that unlatch that door mm. and then realizing, oh, that's just not how the brain works. And it's not as if my brain or anybody else's brain is somehow different and then sort of reading up and I realize, oh God, this is all bad science and mm-hmm. really bad therapy. And it's based on stuff that they should have known. I remember thinking they should have known better. This isn't a freshman yeah. textbook in college, <laughs> you know? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And so I, I do remember calling up Jerry and saying on the phone, I'm not coming back, but also I like, telling him, you know, in my own ways, like, this is not how memory works. I, you know, like, blah, 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 Elizabeth Loftus says, and there's all these studies. And he oh, said, wow. you need to come back for, I don't remember, like an exit session or final session. I'm an like, integration no. ceremony. Yeah, like, no, I'm never coming back. No. Oh, good for you. No. Oh my God. You're awesome. Wow. But I remember feeling so angry that yeah. I was angry not just, I wasn't angry with myself, but I was angry that I, like, it didn't click in sooner, you know, that I wasn't like, wait a minute, I don't think this is how memory works. This doesn't make sense. Show me the science. I mean, I feel like mm. if it if it had been today, you know, like the internet age, I'd probably been like, I went home and Googled this and this does not seem right. I don't know. I, I think that you reacted probably faster and more strongly than most people would. I think even yeah. if I were in that situation and Jerry had said, well, you just need to come back for, I went, oh, oh, okay, I'll give you one more, blah, blah, blah. Uh, good for you. 
I think if I hadn't seen the actual toll that it took on people and also hearing the stories of people who had been there for several years, to hear people saying these things and knowing how they got there, knowing that they didn't start like that. They started just probably like anybody who's like, I just need some therapy. And two years later, they're saying their mother's the high priestess of something. And they've had, you know, they've been part of human sacrifices and they've done all these things. And I think you people just started off normal when you came in here, something happened to you. You've been traumatized by therapy. If I hadn't seen that, it wouldn't have, I think, scared me quite so much into running. Yeah, group therapy was, in a sense, your salvation in this scenario because you got to have so. that that mirror. Yeah. yeah. I can see yeah. how emotional this still is for you. Just even to talk about 30 years later, you're kind of tearing up. Yeah. The, the other part of it is that I felt, and still, I mean, I, I still do. I don't talk about it to anybody. I've never talked about it. It took me a long time to actually get back to a therapist. It probably took me like Mm. 20 years later to actually trust a therapist. And I remember when I trusted them, I was like, I want to know everything about you. I want to know exactly (laughs) what you think. Are you crazy or are you not? So I mean, you know, so I've had great, great experiences there. But you know, there's still like this, I think anybody who goes through any kind of trauma or abuse in some ways, even if you know better, it feels like it reflects on you somehow so you know people who go through Mm -hmm. i know people who are like sexual abuse survivors you know that's not your fault but yet somehow there's still a kind of shame or embarrassment that you carry around with you it's certainly the case for me with this where i think how could i have believed this how could i have been sucked into this even you know even as a teenager it's yeah it's it's tough i'm interested to get your take on that now as like clearly a fully grown emotionally healthy person i feel that sometimes our immediate reaction to that is to say no no no, absolutely none of it is your fault and to sort of talk the person out of what might be a a healthy amount of 10% of responsibility, even if the 90% yeah. is the other person, to still say like, oh, yeah, okay, okay. The one part I can feel good about is that that 10% is different. I have control over that 10%, and I'm going to yeah. walk into the next situation a little bit stronger, a little more informed. Yeah. And we're kind of yeah. um, depriving the person of yeah. that opportunity when we insist they had nothing to do with the situation. Yeah, what do you I think will of say, that? I will say, I mean, I credit a lot of those pretty awful experiences with becoming, doing the exact work that I do now, mm. the kind of work that mm. I do, the way I go about it, the way that I understand my own spirituality, the way that I raise my kids, you know, to, yeah, the way that I teach, you know, a lot of it is like, it's not just, it would be easy to say like, oh, well, it's made me question everything or skeptical of everything. And that's not it exactly either, but it's made me, Mm -hmm. I'm interested in always asking for more. So to say, can you explain Mm -hmm. that? Can you explain how this works? You mean, sometimes I think it would have been nice to say, if I could have gone back to say, can you explain to me exactly the mechanisms of multiple personality disorder? How does, how exactly does that Mm -hmm. work? Show me some studies. (laughs) Right. 
Yeah, maybe if anything, it's kind of made you acutely aware of some of this information and some of these questions that need to be out there in the public conversation. I was going to ask about that. It sounds like these experiences did, in a way, then lead towards your work on the influence of rhetoric and even archives. So we didn't really get to talk to you much about that. So you would say that this was kind of formative in getting you interested. Absolutely. And it's the, it really is, I mean, at the base of it, I study language and this is all about the power of language, all of these things, you know, so whether you're talking about exorcisms and deliverance or something where you are, you know, talking about multiple personality disorder, satanic ritual abuse, it's really easy to think of it in abstract. But when you think about like, there is a power in in language, the way you phrase something, the Mm -hmm. way that, Mm -hmm. you know, you describe things, the words that you tend to use, but also just sort of literally like the frenzy of getting caught up in in language. So it's so powerful and it shapes how you see things, how you perceive. And so that definitely, I think, led to what I'm doing today. I'm curious if Jenny now could go back at any point and kind of intervene in the life of Jenny at 15 or 16. Where would you go? Who would you want to talk to or stop or... Or would you? Or would you? Yeah. I think I would... I do remember at various times, like when I was at the Christian girls farm, I remember trying to ask real questions I had about God. So one big question I had was like, I don't think that the world was literally created in seven days. Maybe it's just like, you know, that's language, you know, but like maybe seven days means something else. And that was, you know, not No, you're right. All. It was six days and then he rested on the seventh <laughs> oh, day. Right. Now be quiet. <laughs> <laughs> and so I learned very quickly, like questions are not welcome, but I think I would have said, keep asking. You deserve, mm. you deserve to ask mm-hmm. questions about this. And it can be very intimidating to just assume people in positions of authority must know more than you do, but it's not not always the case. So, I mean, it makes me very sad. Actually, when I first was talking to Carrie, I thought all of that stuff's over now. I think all that therapy is probably done and, you know, nobody's experiencing Mm. that anymore. So that's all behind us. It makes me very sad to think that there are still what I think of as very traumatizing forms of therapy that are messing with not only people's memories, but messing with their sense of identity and basically saying you exist on such a such smaller plane than you really do Mm. I remember one time thinking like I I would do something really talented I would like I would like do collage or something like that and so I can remember my therapist who worked with Jerry worked with Magazi saying like so who did that like ask inside who did that I was like I did did, it give me credit I did like who's the who's the you know, creative one Ugh. thing like because it can't possibly be you. It's Jenny. I, I, Shit, am, are. I am. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, Ugh. yeah. It is still happening, and I mean, I I do think that it's not at its apex or nadir, depending on which <laughs> way you're <laughs> looking at this graph, like it was in the '90s. But it's it's just gotten sort of more sophisticated, uh, mm. in my understanding. And something you said about how it seems like. So many women, and it is usually women, women in the groups were getting worse and worse. There's a book by Lenore Terre, who is sort of a hero in that movement, in the recovered memory movement, Mm -hmm. called Unchained Memories. And in that, she talks about 
she just details all her patients getting worse and worse and worse, but justifies that by saying, well, yes, of course, this is something we know gets worse before it gets better. You know, it's the same as, um, you know, if you have malaria and we have to give you some very advanced drug, yeah, you get really sick, but later you feel much better than when you started. And But you're reading these stories and going like, okay, so give me one good one. Mm. Give me one Mm -hmm. where someone at the end goes, and then I integrated and it was great. And now I'm a history teacher. But that's just it's very rare if it wow. happens like that. Well, I will say for mm. Jerry Mangazi, his one person is Herschel Walker, who uh, is yes. the baseball player. His book, yes, football football player, football player, and he and Jerry Heisman's was his therapist. Oh. Yes, yep. and he was diagnosed with MPD, and Jerry treated him, and so that's his. Like this guy must know what he's talking about because. Uh, Herschel Walker, you know. Yeah. Wow. Uh, Jerry Mungazi wrote the foreword to his book, and uh, in the foreword, and <sighs> yep, yeah, in the foreword yeah. and in Herschel Walker's preface, it's repeatedly said. This is in the first like three or four pages. It's like you're gonna want to not accept your diagnosis, but you gotta accept your diagnosis, even if it sounds nuts, so that then you can move forward. This is like yeah. in the very beginning wow. before yeah. you even begin the story. Wow. Um, so yeah, it tells you how much people just internally are like, wait, no, my diagnosis should at least match my personal intuitive experience. Right. And then yeah. you sort of get talked out of, of that intuition. Yep. Yeah. Jenny, I, I got to ask, you mentioned that you've met Bob Larson. What was the context? <laughs> how did that go? <laughs> yeah. Um, so I met Bob Larson. He was working, well, as you know, I mean, I didn't realize they were still doing stuff together, but he used to come down for, this is at a time when he was very involved with MPD and SRA on his radio mm-hmm. show. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, talk you know, yeah. So, um, he would come down to Dallas quite a bit to do like little fundraising kinds of things. So I got to know him from the connection with Jerry and was kind of hanging around that. That's the thing is that was very strange is that Jerry would invite a lot of us patients to things that looking back on, we probably should not have been attending like the, (laughs) the conferences and the, like I went to one of his sessions for, it was for, I guess for area wide police law enforcement people. So it wasn't a particular police department but for like law and law enforcement where he's you know showing them like here's what happens here's you can know if somebody's experiencing satanic ritual abuse either the signs oh right which tells you exactly what to ape if you want to stay in the system yeah so the fact that like we're being invited to this feels like it constantly is feeding you that narrative, keeping mm. you on the line, keeping it going. And so Bob Larson was doing a lot of fundraising at that time. Mm. And he would have I still is. these little get togethers. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I would listen to talk back and I don't know why he was so obsessed at that time with MPD, with multiple personality disorder. But he and Jerry, I don't even know how they met, but they were like two peas in a pod Hmm. so um, bob would come down and speak sometimes at some of these like little regional conferences and i listened to talk but i thought it was a lot of fun to listen to i thought it was sure (laughs) crazy and wild and so meeting him and he was 
you know, in person, he's, as you know, he's like very charming in person. You know, he's very charismatic and uh, that's for sure weird. Um, <laughs> I loved listening to him in the same way that I loved listening to Howard Stern. You know, it just felt uh, like it was all this theater <laughs> and it was mm-hmm. ter- listening to people obviously sort of troll him at the time Mm -hmm. whatever's Um, going on it's good listening but i also know that people looked at him at the time as like oh here's somebody here's one of the only people who's really speaking out and taking this seriously you know he was really taking the uh, the sra stuff seriously and so as you know so he i think he wrote dead air (laughs) i think Mm -hmm. Um, with help his name's right. On it. That's right. That's right. And I met Lori. Um, oh, wow. Too. So she would come down. There was also Margot, who was somebody else who he worked very closely mm-hmm. with. Um, and I knew Margot a little better. But he was writing that at the time, which has a very heavy, I think, SRA thread does, to it. Yeah. But he was be he was like able to engage with a lot of Jerry's patients as a result of that. So he was he had a lot of like chances to talk to alters hear people's mm. stories who probably shouldn't have been asked to share their stories with him. And so I always look back at that and think, this is really gross. You know, that I don't know of any other therapist who'd be like, you should really, you guys should come meet this guy. I talked to him a little bit about your experiences. And then he goes and this writes this book. Public radio and host and author. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It was sort of like a very incestuous kind of relationship. Yeah, that's the word that was um, coming to mind. I guess I'm not surprised that they're still yeah, doing stuff together. Though, but t- to be fair, I think, um, yeah, Bob was saying that it it had been like a couple decades since they'd interacted. Oh, okay. So okay. That makes sense. All right. They haven't. Not that it makes it better, but. They haven't um, kept the roadshow going completely, but they're still two peas in a very strange pod. Yeah. They, uh, <laughs> it's just a big pod. <laughs> they're mutually beneficial, I think, for each other. Yes. Well, sure. Mm-hmm. Uh, okay. So one thing that you said made me I was sort of hearing the uh, devil's advocate voice in my head when you were talking about how you you did develop the memories or you did like see the things when they were suggested to you but it sounds like there was a little ambivalence about whether they were real the whole time it, uh, well for, first of all is that right for me was there ambivalence yeah I think it felt more like at least from in my experience if I felt something all I needed to do is to say I remember having this really creepy, like I have a creepy memory about this old church basement and I think something happened here. And, you know, you'd be pushed to figure out what happened there. And so maybe you would, but I would also not like, I wouldn't see anything, you know, I wouldn't see things actually happen, but it was almost like the impressions of something. And if something suggested to you, because I don't have the Mm -hmm. memory Somebody else is telling me that all these terrible things are happening, but it never right. sort of like passes through my consciousness. And it wasn't so, a visual memory. Yeah. Not at all. Okay. No. So the the devil's advocate voice in my head, uh, the person who believes that they have recovered memories yeah. might say, well, okay, so that sort of lack of confidence that she had that whole time, that shows yeah. she was misdiagnosed. She's sort of the sure. exception here. And if she had, re- if those were real memories, she'd feel stronger about them. What, yeah. what, what do you say about that? I mean, I would go back to what, and I'm not a, I'm not a memory expert, but I see yeah. what people who do those studies on memory tell us. And, and it is that what we know is that memories are not 
perfectly preserved. You know, I mean, we just, mm-hmm. this is why oftentimes legally they're so problematic, like witness statements. And, you know, that's just not how our memories get preserved. So I have to say, you know, there are definitely things that, I mean, this whole experience, for example, is a, is a great case where I have, for obvious reasons, I just like, I'm not going to think about this. I'm not going to talk about it, kind of block it out. And there's like details that I don't remember, but I know that they happened. I mean, over time, it's been 30 right. years. I do know they happened. So blocking it out means I get to a Choosing point where not it's, to think about it. It's habitual. It, yeah. Habitually, it just doesn't come into it anymore. I don't. But to me, that's a bit of a different situation. And hearing about people who have gone through trauma who do that type of thing where they're just like, I'm not going to talk about it. To me, I think, okay, like people who have went through the Holocaust, people who go through, you know, mm-hmm. are survivors of, you know, sexual trauma. It's just not quite the same as when I hear people who go through and get recovered memories that they never knew this happened to them. They had no right. experience of that. That's where I start to think, how do you have no idea that that happened to you? Especially on the scale that you're talking about, and this mm-hmm. is a magnificent, magnificent scale, you know, I would never tell somebody that their memories are or aren't true. I would just say, it, mm-hmm. it seems to me like there's a difference between going back and really trying to reconnect with something that you've just buried emotionally and saying like, wow, I thought I had a really happy childhood. As it turns out, you know, I was forced to participate in human sacrifices and so traumatic. Right. I never even remembered it. I think it feels like you'd remember that. You know? Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, or if it, yeah, it doesn't match sort of your pre-existing understanding of how your childhood went. That seems like a big tip off. Yeah. And I mean, especially because unfortunately we do have, we have evidence of what happens to children when they go through massive trauma we you know there are mm-hmm. things that come up and so it's really hard for me to think all of those things together I have to, all I have are these clues I have to take the fact that you never knew this leading up to this point you never did, gave any indication and it wasn't until you happened to meet this person who then you know ask you questions in a certain way to kind of co-create a memory together Right. That it came up and it happened to happen. It happened for you in the very same way that happened for all these other patients that happened to be at this practice. Right. I know that some people, they do come up, quote unquote, spontaneously, but it's usually after some sort of suggestion. Like, you know, someone says, uh, you know, this is something I ask every patient, but um, have you endured any sexual trauma? And they say no. And then they go home and later they think, oh, you know what? I think actually now that I'm thinking about it. Or they read uh, a story of someone else's trauma, and then they start to sort of remember something. But uh, at least Richard McNally out of Harvard says um, that should always feel like, oh, I haven't thought about that in forever, rather than uh, like, oh, my God, I had no idea that happened. Yeah. Yeah. And I think it's the sense of like recovering perfectly preserved memories to me that also seems a little bit, you know, off in some way. Um, to mm-hmm. where you go from zero to a hundred real fast, and that just seems a little bit questionable to me. Yeah, yeah. Well, we could we could talk to you for a long time. I know we haven't even touched on some of your areas of specialty. So uh, thank you so much, Jenny, for Thanks sharing for having me, guys. These thank both you. very personal yeah. stories, but also your your special knowledge about these topics.
I really yeah, appreciate thank you the so chance. much. And what's the name of your book so people can buy it? It's called Awful Archives, Conspiracy Theory, Rhetoric, and Acts of Evidence. And Go buy it. It, has a, it, yes, it, it. Is, it is not your average nerd book. It's <laughs> written for nerds, but it's better than your average nerd book. Oh, good. Okay. Okay. <laughs> better than your average nerd book. That's the blurb right there. <laughs> <laughs> That's a Yogi Bear. Wow. Well, that was quite a chat. Yeah. Oh, my goodness. And we could obviously talk to Jenny a lot longer about her research into archives and her experience as uh, someone raised in the evangelical church and with Jerry Magadzi. So uh, hopefully we engaged your interests as we did ours because we were really excited to talk to to Jenny Rice. Yeah, she is so uh, thoughtful and well-spoken and boy, she knows a lot. So I'm excited to get her book. Well, actually, here, full disclosure, I bought her book. Oh, like. A long time ago, but yeah. I can't dang find it. Now I'm going to have to buy a second copy. Oh, no. And of course, you'll find it right as the new one shows up. That's true. And then I'll, maybe I'll give it to someone. Maybe someone will be lucky. But if you Ooh. also want to buy Jenny's book, it's called Awful Archives, Conspiracy Theory, Rhetoric, and Acts of Evidence. Fantastic. Not Acts of the Apostles. Acts of Evidence. That's better. <laughs> Well, thank you so much to Jenny Rice for joining us on this episode. Yes, and thank you to our administrative manager, Ian Kramer. This episode was edited by Ross Blum. That's correct. Uh, this, uh, well said. And also our theme music composer, Brian Keith Dalton. Oh, yeah. If you are Jerry Mungadzi or someone from his office, we would love to interview you. Get in touch. Yeah. If you want to help support this podcast and all that we do and these exciting conversations, you can find us at MaximumFun.org slash join and become part of the Maximum Fun family. You can also follow us on social media. We've got Twitter. We're at Ono Podcast. And we got Facebook at Facebook.com forward slash onrack. O-N-R-A-C as in, oh no, rice, Jenny Rice and coffee. Sounds pleasant. And also on our social media, you can find the video that I alluded to last time of me reciting pie that is now posted. <laughs> it, that It's very boring, but some people find it oddly compelling. No, it's fun. It's cool. <laughs> I've got like I overlays. You can follow along with the numbers. Anyways. I watched the entire thing. I oh, really wow. Did. Okay. Yeah, That's yeah. impressive. No, I mean, it's very weird to watch someone like, like you're so clearly in it. You're uh-huh. telling a story to yourself that we can't see, and that's <laughs> that's pretty exciting to follow. So I have now I have now submitted my application for the Pie World ranking list to Germany. I found out that's where the the guy who runs the list is, and uh, now we've sparked a little German pen pal relationship, which is kind of fun. Ah, cute, love it. I told Drew about you planning this event and i said yeah guess how many digits of pi ross has memorized and he said mm, 50 no which should I was be like no <laughs> so uh, okay this is i didn't mean to i didn't mean to get off on a on a tangent here but once a friend of mine inquired you know if you were to if you were to use pi in in an equation that compared the uh, the width of the known physical universe with the smallest unit of width that we have, like a Planck unit, it was something like 47 places of pi you would need. So really, 
what Drew was predicting is more pie than you would ever need for any practical oh. application. Okay. I didn't understand the first two thirds of that thought, but I understood the last part. Okay. That's good enough for me. So I recited 1,415 places of pie just so it would be 1415. And I'm in the story. Yes, that's right. Some of those digits refer to Carrie and tell stories with Carrie involved. 83. And remember. From an interview with Jerry Mungadzi by Benny Hinn. Everything that I talk about you know, is based on numbers, is based on studies, which is what you do when you're a scientist. Now, one thing that surprised me is for many, many years when I lived in Africa, I saw people that were demonized, but I didn't know that you can actually see demonization in people's brains, which I can now. Wait, 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 stop. You can see demonization in people's brains? Yeah. How? Uh, there's a certain color that I won't mention that tells me if someone is demonized. Oh. Now, let me explain what he just said to you. What he has you do, and by the way, we're going to show you materials that you can have on your own. Uh, you, he, he divided the brain into different parts, and each part speaks of one area of your life. Yes. Uh, this is how you relate to people. This deals with uh, your, your compassion, or uh, this deals with your identity. Uh, this deals with, with your uh, focus your focus and so on. And by the colors you choose, you, you, you take colored pencils and you color every area. He can tell you everything about yourself. Now, you know, you hear this and now that's, that's impossible. No, no, trust me, he, this man really can. I can be in a room with people, that, for example, some of the people in the occult who are steeped in, in demonology. I may not know just by sitting next to them, but I let them do that, I can tell them what spirit they have and what it is doing in their life. Where it's, where By it's, the color? Yeah. Wow. If the trouble is a spiritual trouble, uh, demonization for instance, mm -hmm. or if the trouble is the uh, religious abuse, people that grow up in, in families where they are abused religiously, or people that come from the occult, people coming from witchcraft. And what colors do they choose usually? Uh, usually you know, blacks and browns and grays. Wow. It's me, James Arthur M., host of Minority Corner, your home through these bewild times for weekly doses of pop culture, history, news, nerdy stuff, and more through a BIPOC queer and allied lens. That's how you get Joel Schumacher putting nipples on Batman. Yeah. I didn't ask, like, and I say no. this as a gay, I say this as a gay man, didn't ask for it. I don't need to see <laughs> Batman's nipples on his suit. Who is this for? Who is this for? <laughs> I did a bunch of research. I wanted to just know about the history of black people in Argentina. So not only did they erase black people from their history, they also started to flip and use it as slurs. We're not done. Like, we're not done with the work that needs to yeah. be done. And so stay awake. So join me and some of your new BFFs every Friday here on Maximum Fun to stay informed, empowered, and have some fun. Minority Corner, because together we're the majority. MaximumFun.org. Comedy and culture. Artist owned. Audience supported.